Ceramics are everywhere in today's world, but who are the scientists and engineers who work with such materials? Now is your chance to meet them here on Ceramic Tech Chat. Welcome, I'm Mylene DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat, the podcast of the American Ceramic Society. Over half of people pursuing undergraduate studies in the United States are first-generation students, according to the data from the National Center for Education Statistics, which defines first-generation as students whose parents did not have a bachelor's degree. And yet, first-generation students are often talked about as a minority on college campuses, and they sometimes face a stereotypical expectation that they are more likely to fail in college because they lack persistence and confidence. But the truth is, many first-generation students do graduate and go on to very successful careers. And once they've found success, their backstory is often overlooked, missing out on a great opportunity for them to become role models for first-generation students today. Luckily for us, that opportunity is not going to be missed today. I'm, I'm a first-generation person. Uh, I didn't get a university until I was 21, even as undergraduate. Uh-huh. I thought they were all Einsteins. Uh, <laughs> I was misinformed. That is Clive Randall, director of the Materials Research Institute at the Pennsylvania State University, where he has been a professor for 32 years. Clive, an expert in the field of ferroelectrics and ceramic processing, is himself a first-generation college student. But what compelled him to pursue a university education, and how has he used his journey to help others? Unlike some of our guests on this podcast, Clive did not go to university right out of high school. Instead, his inspiration to go to college came a few years later. I was working as a I was working as a technician in an animal food stuff in a place called Ipswich in Suffolk, and uh, everyone told me that I should go to university. I didn't believe them. I had a boss that was continuously teasing me, and uh, there was one day when I saved a process, which then made everything go out, and he took credit for it. And oh. that night, I applied to university. Oh. He did me an enormous favor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and did you have any thought of a PhD at that time? I, I read a paper as an undergraduate that has never been cited. Uh, um, and it was on positron physics. And I realized I'd made myself rather impractical. And uh-huh. so then I transitioned and I got a first. And so, so then people said, oh, you should not do, do a master's. I was going to do a master's. And then they said, you should do a PhD. And I met David Barber, who invented the iron beam thinner. And they told me about this project on ferroelectrics with Plessy, and it seemed interesting. Mm-hmm. And he was incredibly bright. And I liked the idea that I'd be working with industry as well as working on this new way of looking at materials that people hadn't done before. And that was a very good decision that I made. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had excellent mentors. As a first-generation person, how did your family react to this Business like, did they ever say, Clive, are you ever going to really stop going to school? Or That's funny. Uh, um, after my bachelor's, um, I, uh, I remember going to my cousin's wedding, and uh, my uncle thought I was lazy. <laughs> and uh, was sort of avoiding reality. It's a farming community, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, culture was, the culture was what the culture was. Yeah. And 
And, uh, I, and in fact, uh, I think most of the scientists in our community work enormously long hours. Sometimes I envy the farmers. <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like material science was not your initial goal, that you sort of discovered it along the way. I, 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 like the, I like the fact that it spans engineering all the way through to fundamentals. And so um, I, 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 I believe that, you know, within a career, if there are ways of transitioning something and working with industry, then that, that's, that's possible when, when, you're, when you're in physics. But it's, uh, I, I saw the opportunities being greater uh, within the ceramics community. And, and actually for... Um, for 20, 20 years at Penn State, I also ran a National Science Foundation IUCRC program, which had 30 companies in it, um, all in the dielectric, piezoelectric space. Mm-hmm. And ferroelectrics, of course, has become an enormous, and piezo too, has become a huge industry. And so what would you say, how would you describe to somebody who maybe isn't familiar with our field what the impact is of the kinds of research you're doing with making things on the nanoscale and processing and understanding the properties? Well, the whole um, communication, computation, and now even the more electrification of cars and uh, requiring more and more electronics to, to be around them. And even though most of the sort of glamour publicity is around the silicon chip, for every silicon chip to function, you've probably got 300 so-called decoupling multilayer ceramic capacitors. One and to that's 300. Wh- and that, and that, so, so there's one chip, mm-hmm. 300 multilayer ceramic capacitors. Wow. And they all have to then be reliable on their extreme conditions, particularly for the automobile applications, mm-hmm. higher voltages and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's where this understanding of the defect chemistry, mixed ionic con- uh, conduction, and all the things that would be a problem regarding the reliability and the failure of your laptop or worse, your car, and how annoying it would be that you couldn't get your Facebook contacts. That would be tragic. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And then you're the director of the Materials Research Institute at Penn Mm. State, so can you just tell me a little bit about what the mission of the MRI is and who's involved? So there's 300 faculty members that are affiliated or co-hired onto that institute. We have, a, we have an interesting structure uh, at Penn State where we have you know, the normal department and dean structure, and then you've got five institutes that then go perpendicular orthogonal to that structure, and our job is to really drive interdisciplinary research. And... Those other institutes include uh, cyber and data, social sciences, energy and environment, and life sciences. And so working with this group in this orthogonal direction really means that you are in a continuous mission of learning from each other. And, it, and that's, that's a great part of, uh, of a job like that. Mm. And then trying to recruit really open-minded, cross-disciplinary scientists, and particularly those with bigger visions than just maybe understanding the physics or the chemistry of what they're working on for their PhDs. Trying to recruit people that will have an impact later on is really also an important part of that, the recruitment part of faculty. Mm -hmm. So the MRI then expands well beyond 
Farrah Electric's work. Oh gosh, oh gosh, uh, yes, yeah. uh, 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 um, and rightly so. I should be fired if uh, if, if it was just turned into the Farrah Electric Institute. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, do you do you do things at the MRI to encourage cross fertilization of ideas? to kind of bring in perspectives from fields afar to what other people are working on? Yeah, absolutely. It, even, even as simple as a Tuesday morning Millennium Cafe where we serve good coffee mm-hmm. and we have, we have scientists from the, from the physical science side talk and mm-hmm. we also have one in the life sciences. And it's usually a way of, of new faculty to Penn State introducing themselves to a community. It's... Uh, it can stretch into the arts, it can stretch into the humanities, but it, but it can also have this real crossover in this area of convergence, which is becoming very popular, and seeing how the material science can then be linked to the life sciences. Mm-hmm. What about cognitive sciences? You know, there's, yeah, have so, heard so, some of that in the convergence. So, space. so absolutely. I mean, we've got scientists that are working on 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 sensor technologies that you would wear and linking those to depression and uh-huh. uh, and also other things like Alzheimer's and, and other things like that. So th- that's where you you really do, you know, I think material scientists and particularly the electrical material scientists and electrical engineers and, and material physicists can often come up with a sensor, but then finding the right community for them to then, then apply that sensing technology to then develop these complicated things as complicated as mm-hmm. brain behavior mm-hmm. is, is that now this is we're making materials out of 2d type materials so it's a little bit on the periphery of, of, of mm-hmm. ceramics but but it shows where that crossover is right right as Clive said, Interdisciplinary collaboration plays a huge role in material science, as discoveries made by materials scientists can be used to create devices for applications in other disciplines, such as the life sciences. But for Clive, there is one application of ceramics that he is particularly passionate about, and that is ceramics for humanitarian initiatives. These humanitarian programs I think are also quite inspiring for for kids that that are coming into a science and they've got to go to Thanksgiving and talk to grandma and say, well, what's this ceramics business? What's this materials part? And now they can give it some examples, sensors and, uh, and um, making nozzles of aircraft and enabling high temperature, more efficient engines and so forth. But then also saying that, well, we're making point-of-care water filtration. Do you know that 25,000 children die of, of, of drinking bacterial contaminated water? Mm-hmm. Here is a way of controlling that. Mm-hmm. And so I think those messages get across. I'm mean, talking about barium titanate or 2D materials and things like that. It will be lost in terms of the, in terms of the general public. Mm-hmm. But there are many, many other things that mm-hmm. I think these types of programs owe that's what we do. I thought ceramics were toilets or pottery. It's what much more than that, even in a functional level. Yeah. Do you know if there are any active programs in deploying water treatment systems based yes. on ceramics? I mean, even co- uh, uh, there's many companies out there, oh. uh, um, even making parts like this. One, one of your sponsors at this conference, Imaris, has got programs like this and mm-hmm. making them in, in Pakistan, for example. Okay. Yes. 
Uh, I went to a national lab in South Africa where they had a whole R&D facility in one of their national labs all worrying about, about various forms of water treatments. And then that also builds up a, a localized business with employment and other things that go with commerce. The United Nations Sustainability Goals. Some yes. of them is employment. Some of them is in in, in water quality. Yes, that's one of the and, twelve. And 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 so so this is absolutely inter, uh, intermingled to 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 this. And materials people play an important role mm-hmm. here. So, do you think that there's a role for? us from first world countries to build a workforce in terms of, you know, exporting our knowledge of ceramic processing and ceramic Absolutely, in part, but also us understanding maybe the machinery and what's enabling for them. Mm-hmm. So it's not just taking the highest milling media and, uh, and highest energy uh, um, and best furnace technologies that, that, that we're using. It's like, what can you do? But, but using maybe the understanding of, of, I don't know, zeta potential in terms of milling and dispersion. Can you then use that in a way that would be useful? Mm-hmm. So, and, and just even using you know, more natural acids like, you know, acetic acid or, uh, mm-hmm. or something very, very simple to just to try and get a stronger latherite brick, for example, mm-hmm. that isn't going to wash out in a monsoon because it was, mm-hmm. it was more than, more than uh, its mechanical properties improved by better dispersion and better processing. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like there's a very creative aspect also to working with these kinds of problems because you're limited by what the local resources are and it's not exactly that it's a limitation, it's that it's a different set of resources than what we might be used to thinking of as Yes, uh, uh, I, uh, and, you know, when, when, when we were kids, I mean, you could work on your car to keep it going. It's impossible to even hardly find the battery now and f- put the right fluids in. Uh, and so there's a whole skill set where a lot of people... Uh, are going into an engineering subject and are not comfortable even changing the tire on a bicycle. But, um, but giving them the, the tools and the right types of hands-on training and even framing it in this very simple way of, uh, of, of making, making them see that if you peel an industry down to its core in terms of the rheology and the dispersion and so forth... And, and take it from the classroom on a colloidal particle sintering study and mm-hmm. map it onto solving a problem that could help a remote village in, I don't know, Tanzania. Mm-hmm. And I know the American Ceramic Society has been working a little bit on developing some humanitarian activities, and you've been a part of that. Can you just update us briefly on kind of where, where we are with that? Yeah, so, I mean, in Portland, that, that meeting ran the very first sort of pitch competition. So it was even just getting people to think in almost a shark tank type of idea that you have a humanitarian materials problem and you have put these teams in. I'd like to see that being developed more because it, it, it allows then the students to, to realise that, that you have to think differently about cost and supply chain Mm -hmm. and the problem that you're trying to solve and the skill sets and the sustainability of the solution Mm -hmm. and it may be very different than working for 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 one of our 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 companies in um in the united states for example right so it's a different skill set and but it but it touches again the rudimentary parts of all of the decision making Mm -hmm. um and it's something that something that they can be very proud of 
Yeah, for sure. I did have a chance to go to that, and they were really impressive presentations. Yes. I was really impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Because of all the reasons you cited, you know, we looked at local resources and local infrastructure, what the costs, realistic costs were going to be and the trade-offs. It was really, really well done. Yes. I, I think for young people, they believe that their careers are about high impact papers it's very important to have high impact papers but for example and and i've got a a reasonable so-called hirsch index right but it's it's not the most important thing and i think there is a a drug that people are now feeding off for that and it's not it, it it is somewhat dangerous and naive back in 1970s rustin roy talked about another type of age factor called the human impact factor and it's in his book of experimenting with the truth. And at that time, the number one thing was nuclear war. Mm. And it's before the internet, before all of those things. The most sophisticated thing was a television in terms of the home and, uh, and, and, and so forth. But it was about a number of different factors that, that are there. If you do the same analysis for the sort of figure of merit on human factor, then the climate is the most obvious thing that as engineers and as scientists we have to now do. This is... This is now getting so serious that without having our research directed towards those types of problems, an H factor, are people going to put it on their gravestone as an epitaph? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. It's, it's telling our grandchildren, or our grandchildren speaking of, of, of the scientists at this time and this time that managed to do something. Mm-hmm. and tell their children that, 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 oh, that was something that your grandmother did or this is something that your grandfather did mm-hmm. is much more important. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. I think scientists are, and engineers are uniquely, and especially researchers, are uniquely positioned to solve, in a substantive way, the big problems. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to publish. Because a lot of people just in their daily lives can, you know, recycle everything they own. And it's important yes. and it needs to be done, but it won't really advance the needle to the degree that it needs to be. No. But people in research who, you know, have the talent and the skills to do that, they can really move the needle. Clive himself has been involved with moving the needle in research in a number of ways. But one of the main ways he's been moving the needle in recent years is by championing a radical new idea, cold centering. I found myself back in 2012 reading books in the geological area and just just interested in understanding a little bit more. And then there was a group in, in, in Finland that then showed room temperature centering of lithium molybdate. And it was very clear that, that that work was using some of the kinetics and processes that, that potentially were at play in, in the geology of the earth, in the sedimentous rock. And so immediately we, we started to, to, 
to work with some very, very old carver presses, which are 40 years old. And I knew that we needed to play temperature. I knew we needed to then control particle sizes and we needed to control surface chemistry to control the interactions of very, very small amounts of solvent and the interactions with the surface. And almost over a period of six months, we went from, we went from maybe three or four different examples to almost 60 different types of materials that we could densify. And we kept, kept expanding from very simple layered structures to then close pack structures, various different crystal structures, various different ionic and covalent bonding mixtures, different chemistries. And, and the whole secret lies within the use of a very important transient phase that comes and goes. As I said, it's got to be an open system. And then controlling that to then drive all the molecular species that are needed to then drive the cindering densification process. And also, very quickly, we realized that, that by by going from these typical temperatures, you know, the Ashby diagrams showed that, you know, it's 0.5, the homologous temperature over the melting temperature to 0.95, right? These really high temperatures, all the mechanisms described on this. We're at 0.1 and 0.2, right? Wow. And, and, it's, and it's shifting cindering temperatures, you know, by factors of 10. And so it then pushed things into a regime of where processing with polymers is possible. So now you, now you can then make completely different types of materials. Maybe they're bio-inspired. Maybe, maybe they're just allowing a pathway to even a cyclic economy where you can get rid of a nanometer of polymer at the end of life and there are a very low temperature process and re- regain, I don't know, the barium titanate powder, the, um, um, the, the components of a battery, whatever, a brick, maybe. So you are already experiencing some industrial interest. In- it, it was done in secret for two years before we even made a public announcement and oh. the patents, and it was done within the, the, the Center for Dielectrics and Piezoelectrics at Penn State. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, that, so there was company people watching it yeah. from, the, from right at the beginning. Yeah. Do you think it will, I mean, what industry do you think will be the first to adapt technology? Well, I think because a lot of those people were in the electronic space, then I I see that could be in the packaging area. Uh, There's lots of interesting properties for for microwave-based applications and antenna applications. We see pathways to capacitors. We see pathways to to medical ultrasound. Okay. Would uh, this kind of... But it may be because we are biased because of our, our previous training, right? That's possible because it's what you have the most yeah. and, knowledge of. Yeah, and because of the people we're talk, talking right. to. It's nice to see other universities now not only reproducing what we have done and pushing it in new ways, but also now starting to think about what in the other areas can, mm-hmm. can be looked at. And, 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 it, and it is an important step. I mean, Sol Gel, I remember when Sol Gel was around many, many years ago and how that became an important industrial process for, mm-hmm. for producing alumina and other things. Mm-hmm. And we hope that, that, that this will be a fast transition out of the laboratory into production. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, we are needing changes in, in the way we make things. We cannot continue us the way we can. 
we have to be absolutely aware that there is enormous pressures on industry and the, the, the CO2 footprint that we are leaving with the present day processes. Mm-hmm. Materials research is about more than technical impact. It's about having a human impact that helps improve people's lives, as Clive is doing with his research on cold sintering and his activities leading the American Ceramic Society's Humanitarian Activities Network. I'm Eileen DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat. Please see this episode's show notes to learn about Clive and his research and the Society's Humanitarian Activities Network on the ceramics.org website. Ceramic Tech Chat is produced by Lisa McDonald and copyrighted by the American Ceramic Society. Until next time, I'm Eileen DeGeer, and thank you for joining us.